Yorana Tato, you're listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exist to share the voices of those connected to the land. Our vision is to create a resource for Pilina, connection to place. Native Stories aims to activate indigenous perspectives. Obehia Wheeler to Ioa, no Waiaohu Mayao, no Hoao i Afaritu Moorea. My name is Behia Wheeler, and I am from Waiaohu, and I am now residing in Afaritu Moorea Te Aumaohi. My guest today is Anna Manuireba, who I have come to know from a mutual friend who connected us because we both have ancestry to Mangareba, which is a Pacific island located in southern eastern Polynesia. It is part of the Gambier Islands, one of the archipelagos located in what some people call French Polynesia. Just a little bio for Anna. Anna Manuireba was born in Mangareba, Gambier, the smallest archipelago in Mohinui. French Polynesia, in December 1967 and left the island due to French nuclear testing that started on July 2nd, 1966. After growing up on Tahiti Island and visiting Mangareba on school holidays, Anna left Tahiti in his 20s to, pers- to pursue his studies in France. He's also lived in England and where he met his wife, and the two now live in Aotearoa. Anna consults the Auckland War Memorial Museum on cultural works and is pursuing a PhD on Mangareben language revitalization at Auckland University of Technology. Um, Yorana, Anna, hello, how are you? Kia ora, Kia ora. <laughs> we are all good here in Aotearoa. And uh, can I just say thank you very much for um, having me uh, on your uh, Native Stories, which I do appreciate very much. Thank you. Oh, yeah, we're super excited to talk with you today to find out a little bit more about your story, to find out a little bit more about the Pacific and Mangareva, and hopefully our listeners will be very interested. So um, so you were born in Mangareva and raised in Tahiti, if that's right. Can you let it, tell us a little bit more about your upbringing and your connection to Mangareva? Uh, yes, of course. Um, my... Um... My childhood in Mongariva was very short, I have to say, because I was born in 1967, December, and uh, we left uh, Mongariva when I was when I was six months, seven months old, you know, in uh, 68, just before the biggest uh, nuclear testing in uh, in Anbororua called the Canopus. That was the most, the, the heaviest mm. ever they had. Uh, the friends uh, produce or created. So we left before that from my parents, um, and uh, we we managed to stay in um, in Tahiti. One of the reasons was that obviously my dad was uh, worried, and my dad and my mom they were worried about uh, the consequences uh, of uh, the fallout, you know, onto the region. And even though we were only 350, 400 kilometers from Mororoa. And Fagatofa, we could see the wind coming towards us, you know, towards east, southeast. So uh, my dad, who was a, uh, a fisherman, a pearl diver, and a handyman, you know, he was working in different places in Mangareva, or even going to uh, pearl fishing or pearl diving in different area in uh, in uh, the Tuamotus. But obviously, he was based. We were based in. In Mongolia, so my parents decided that we should go to um, to stay with my uh, grandmother from my mom's side in uh, in Tahiti. So we had a land there with the grandmother. And one of the main reasons is, but I only knew that somewhat 
six, seven months ago, is that my mom um, was very worried about my sister, the one just before me. She was born in November 66. Uh, so uh, what happened is that uh, they were talking about those uh, jelly babies, which uh, in a sense is that uh, she couldn't retain the food she was eating. My, my little sister, my, ah. my, my older sister, she couldn't retain, so she had diarrhea all the time. She couldn't stand up, she couldn't walk until she was, I think, two years old, which is quite late. But the main problem is that the doctor said that we, she, she can't retain the food, and she was, that's what they call it, you know, so they, they couldn't, <coughs> she couldn't assimilate the food. So my mom thought, we're going to go to Tahiti because at least they have a hospital there. And uh, they will look after my my sister, the one just before me. So that's the main reason. It's not really, you know, uh, the, the, the danger was there, obviously, but it's a consequence of, uh, one of the consequences of uh, nuclear testing. So, yeah, we went to, uh, back, not back, but I went as a baby to Tahiti and I grew up there until, you know, I think um, the old, first time I went back to Tahiti to visit, not to Tahiti, sorry, to Mongareva to visit, to pay a visit to my relatives when I was 11, 12. So that is when I decided, obviously, the nuclear testing were still, nuclear tests were still, you know, a part of everyday's life for the Mongarevians. So, <clears throat> sorry. so yeah, yeah, here's my, <laughs> my small uh, story as a, as a baby of six, seven months old taken to um, to Tahiti and growing up there in Tahiti until I was 12, 11 and started going to visit my relatives in Mongareva. Ah, okay. And so for those people who don't know, um, France conducted nuclear tests here in French Polynesia starting in 1966, like you had said. Um, on these two atolls, which you had mentioned, uh, Morudoa and Fongataufa. And Mangareva is n actually not very far from there. And so, like you were saying, there could be a potential, there's a fallout that. Yes, yes, there has been, well, yeah, been proven, yes. And so, do, um, do people in Mangareva, like at this time, they were aware that there was nuclear testing, they were aware that the um the nuclear testing has negative effects on people because i know at this time that there was a strong french government propaganda saying that these are clean quote-unquote clean tests low bomb prop yeah yeah you're, you're, you're right you're absolutely right i think um what happened is that, uh, i was talking to my mom about this anyway because it's a part of my phd too um what happened is that they were told the Mongarevian people were told that, uh, and I don't know if we mentioned that, but Mongareva is has a particularity of being an island, not an atoll. The atoll would be from the Tuamutu as you could go down, and when you get at the end of Tuamutu, you come across this island or those islands because the archipelago, the Mongareva archipelago, known as the Gambia, because obviously somebody famous might have thought that they've, they discovered they discovered uh, Mongareva, so. Mangareva is an island. <clears throat> Ten islands altogether, you know, if you want. But some atolls are so small, mutu. But that's a particularity of uh, of Mangareva. So 
when the military arrived, they, they started in 65, 64, 65, they start building a proper airport that could take all the material, heavy material, heavy equipment, to set up uh, Mount Gadawa as one of the base, bases for uh, military base for military personnel, French mostly, obviously. And uh, that, that's what happened. What happened is that we were in the background, so they people will go to uh, Mururua and Fangatofa, and then the military, the uh, all those people at the top would come and stay in Mongareva because it's an island. So they, they might they might think it's a bit more they're more more sheltered if you want. So they they come to Mongareva as the the backdrop of what's happening in uh, in Mururua. So Mongareva is an island. And the particularity as well of Mongareva is that, <coughs> excuse me, the particularity, particularity of Mongareva is that it's quite a, um, a, if you want, it's just like a hub, you know, for people coming from the east. For example, if you want to come from east, uh, from uh, oh, Eastern Island, you'll come to Mongareva, or if you wanted to go to Pekin, go to Pekin, you come to Mongareva, and then you go up to uh, the Tuamu to and then to, uh, to Tahiti. So, you know, it, it, it is a, a hub for people to come and rest in Mongareva as an island and then carry on for their trip. So, Mongareva has this particularity as an island. So, they could, they use one of the, what the airport now called Totengengi is, is, is an international airport. It has the, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, the standard of the norms for being an, an international airport, which allowed the French to bring all the material. So when they came in in 65 to prepare everything, they, they brought a lot of French personnel with them. And as you know, there have been intermarriage between the local girls and the, the French. So we have that kind of a relationship with the French, uh, well, military, but one has to remember that there's something around 400 Mongaravians on the island, whereas the personnel from uh, from outside, well, from the French, it, it equate to uh, nearly 10,000 altogether that came and uh, came and go, you know, came and went. So that's what they were doing. So we we had had a lot of time of uh, French presence in Mongaravia, very tiny island, you know, very. I mean, I think today is the population, the diaspora, you know, whether in Mongolia and in Tahiti, it's around 1,400. But in Mongolia itself is where the people, there's some, there might be just 1,000 in Mongolia now. But I'm not quite sure about the, the figures because they had the uh, elections last year, or is it this year? This year, this year, no, last year. And that's what, that's what the figures are. So Mongolia is quite a sheltered place, so people will come there to to stay and what happened during one of those uh, nuclear tests is that the wind started blowing southeast towards Mongareva and on the island itself there's a famous story about one of the commandant or one of those captains saying I can't stay here we need to go she, he was told that you know the wind are blowing towards you there might be some fallout so you might want to take the first flight so he left he left the first flight, or on the first flight to go to Tahiti to avoid all this uh, fallout, and rightly so, because, well, no, rightly so. They never told the population, that's for sure. There was ne never anything clean 
about those uh, those nuclear testing. So they had have been the population had been lied to, and they they were trusting the word from uh, from the French, and also the church was there as well. But it's very difficult to know if the church knew about what was happening, which is quite. Um, it was a bit opaque, you know. It wasn't transparent. The French administration coming in and saying everything is clean, there won't be any problem. All we're going to do is going to happen over there, so it will never come happen at 400 kilometers away from here. So we're never going to be affected by it. So the church, because Mongolians respect a lot of the church, they listen to the priest and the priest that I know very well because when I was uh, visiting Mongolia. Well, I was a choir boy, so here we go, an altar, sorry, an altar <laughs> servant at the uh, a church, so I, I know the priest very well. So that's what's happening. It was never clean. Uh, Mongolians were never told. Not only when they knew something would happen, that's, that's the new, that the very first one, my mom said to me, we were talking about the very first one, they knew that something, they were told that something would happen, but they were never told when. And they were never told that there is no shelter. What they had was a kind of tent to protect the population, but nobody knew about it. Nobody was told there will be on the 2nd of July this first test, and then you should go and shelter. No, they all came out. They saw this big kind of cloud mushroom, and then after that, they went back to their usual business as usual. So that's what happened. There was never anything clean in those testing. Uh, that is horrible, horrible. It's just hearing you go, yeah. I mean, going, knowing. I mean, I know quite. I know that the French nuclear testing went on here, and but I've never really heard firsthand from people who've like experienced it or had it in their families. Mm. You know, have been close yeah. to those tests. So, yeah, but just, my mom as well was. Uh, what happened, my mom? Uh, when she had my uh, my sister, my mom had her, uh, you know, her lips was bleeding because they get back, they, after the mm. first uh, nuclear test, they went back to normal life. They were never told not to drink the water, not to eat, eat certain fish, not to do this, not to go eat food from, uh, you know, because they used to grow their own food as well. So the soil was also contaminated. The water was contaminated. The soil was contaminated, but they were never told so that's the cell. So my, my mom had bleeding. I mean, all the skin on her lips were all bleeding, and she was sick. Obviously, that was a sign. My dad, as I said, who is a pearl diver, he, he said, we're not staying here. And my mom was quite worried about my sister. So we went to Tahiti. That was the how we left the scene in 68, the to go to Tahiti. Oh, my gosh. And Tahiti is quite quite far, so it's far enough to not have had. Well, this is a question I'm asking. It's not. It's far enough so that they don't are not affected by nuclear testing, or they're still kind of affected because it's. Yes. They are. They are still uh, affected, but not as much as Mongareva. They will. They, they, Tahiti has got a some level of in. Um, if you want infection or contamination, very, very low, but. It's normal life. There is everywhere. There's no particles of uh, uh, kind of a nuclear testing everywhere in the world, but they don't harm you. Whereas in Tahiti, uh, well, sorry, in Mangareva and around it, around the the Tuamotu, uh, like island of 
Today, obviously, Mururu and Fongatefa, it was contaminated, totally contaminated. But islands like Tureya, islands like <coughs> Marutea, those small islands around, though they were contaminated, but Tahiti, uh, sorry, Tahiti, sorry, Tahiti was safe, safe much, much safer 10,000 times than Bangareva because we, we took the mountain, the, the cloud will stop and just, when it starts raining, it just rains and with a fallout in, included in the rain. Oh so God. that's the problem we have. And it's, it's a very sad, sad story because I, you know, I've been, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm over the age of 50. I only knew six months, seven months ago about what happened really and why the reason, well, I only knew the reason why we left because I asked my mom, we don't want to talk about it. We don't talk about it very much. We just think, okay, it happened. We're going to forget about it. And if you forget about it, you haven't got your, it's a part of the native stories, you know, it's a part of our heritage. That's what happened to us. And people need need to know about it. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, um and so people still have been living consecutively in Mangareva since the nuclear testing, right? Like there are people there who have just stayed there and lived their whole lives there up until today and yeah, they have, they have, they have. A lot of people have stayed. They decided to stay because if you don't have a land in Tahiti, we're quite lucky to have a land in Tahiti. So mm. we can stay with my grandma, but people haven't got anything. They will stay. They don't have uh, anywhere to go. So those those people who were born at the same time as me, a lot of them have died, according to my mom. My mom said to me, a lot of your uh, the same babies that were born at the same year as you have died because they decided the parents couldn't afford to go away and what to do in Tahiti when you haven't got a land or a house, when you haven't got any relatives there. They decided to stay because they had no choice. So we are quite lucky. I would say we were quite lucky for uh, for my mom and uh, my dad. So we went and, and, so... and Yes, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say that. Um, and then after me, you got two, I, I got another brother and a sister. But they came, you know, they were born in Tahiti and they didn't have any kind of, if you want, problems with being infected by this uh, radioactivity or fallout. So, yeah. And so do people in Mangareva, as such as your family uh, and family members, uh, extended family members, have they gotten any sort of compensation from the government or any sort of option to move away, any sort any sort of anything from the French government because of um, what they've done? Uh, yeah, we do. You know, I, I, I have been back quite often to Mangareva because of my uh, master's and uh, my PhD. So I have asked people, there, and I know uh, among the people that I have interviewed, you know, I know mostly mostly women have received compensation, but it's you know it's, it's a compensation to pay for their own treatment. That's a compensation. To me, it's not a compensation. If you have to pay for your own treatment, you have just been reimbursed for the payment that you have made. That's what you get. So, you know, it's not a compensation because the French government, they recognize responsibility but not guilt. So, you know, unless you recognize guilt, you, you just responsibility is, is not... Um, there's no compensation for that. So we've been... Not just me, but uh, I'm sure you know very well uh, Father August Carlson. He's been trying for 193, you know, Association mm -hmm. so 193. He's been trying to make sure that the 
the uh, French government recognize what they've done and they have to pay the price for it. But for the moment, it's the denial or the chance to post it. They, they, they chance the the <clears throat> the parameter of uh, why how you have to compensate people if they are recognizing those nearly 20 different uh, cancer disease or uh, cancer link to uh, to those diseases so it's just it's just amazing that how the french have been treating us you know using us as a plague or the playground to have that bomb, you know, experience oh, yeah. there, recognizing that what they did was wrong. It's a crime against humanity. That's what uh, was his name. Macron said not long ago in 2018. It's a crime against humanity. So, you know, it's just, that's, that's, that's where we are. And as I said, we, Mangarewa, we, uh, uh, when I was talking to my, uh, Participants, you know, from my research, we don't talk about it, but you you will see when you go to Mongolia, especially among women, you'll see a high rate of a um, cancer called thyroid cancer. So that's what they have. Women, when 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 you uh, when I interview that you can see they have the cut under just under the their throat. Because they have to clean it, that's why you have the thyroids. It's through water. Women are more exposed, three times more than when men. So we don't know why. It must be a physiological. But we know that uh, I have noticed and have experienced those those women that among them who had their uh, thyroids uh, cancer, and it seems sometimes to be hereditary because we know there's a family over there, Tiapiki, who had the, the mother. Now, the grandmother, the mother, and the daughter, in the same, that three generation, that had the thyroid cancer. So we're just doing some research, especially, I mean, August Carlson will know more about it because that's what he's doing. So, yeah, that, that is what we have from the French. That's our gift. I mean, that's Charles de Gaulle's, General Charles de Gaulle, he will give you a gift of being a part of the amazing history, re rewrite the history of France so they can have the nuclear bomb or the nuclear... Uh, Arsenal. That's what they, they, they do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. So basically, they're reimbursing people sometimes if they have hospital bills, but they're not giving anything extra and just kind no, of ignoring. Yeah. And that, as someone who lives here in French Polynesia, quote unquote, French Polynesia, that doesn't surprise me at all because this is how the 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 general government works in terms of denial, lying, yes. um, yeah, abuse right. of the population. It's very in line with what goes on here. <laughs> so anyway, well, I'm glad that people are able to talk about it freely, such as ourselves. Then, so can you tell us about your uh, PhD research that um, is in relation to any of this nuclear testing or the history of Mangareva? Um, yes. Um, in terms of, uh, I, I did my, um, when I did my first uh, master, well, first of all, when I did my master, the idea was to look at how, look at the Mangare language and, you know, if you go to Mangareva, you'll see that uh, not that many people speak language anymore because it's not spoken in the family, it's not taught at the school anymore. So all they have is a kind of uh, Mongolians uh, through uh, dance tradition, maybe very very small uh, 
amount of uh, chanting. You know, we don't chant or we do, we do whatever other groups will do, which is just uh, cultural performances. That's what we do. Uh, and when I was looking at that, I thought, I, I have to say, I, I, I taught myself Mongarian because it, it, my dad said to me, you know, you, you need to be one of those people who can speak Mongarian because the, the whole family, although we understand, we speak just tiny bit of Mongarian, we can't hold a proper discussion, conversation. So I decided to learn Mongarian myself because it was important for me when I go and interview my participants, I interview them in the language that they are very much more at ease, mm. you know, than, than, than yeah. French, because a lot of them are over the age of 60, 70. And when I was to go, when I want to go and talk to them, French for them is quite a foreign language, if you want. They don't, mm. they might understand it, but they don't speak it. So I decided that for my side, I would make an effort to go and learn myself the language, you know, learn enough to hold a discussion, whether it's the old generation or with the new generation. So I think my mom would be the old generation and the new generation would be my brothers and uh, <coughs> my brothers and my, my sisters. So I decided to it's a self-taught Mongolian using, you know, online discussion dictionaries and looking sometimes they used to have a program on TV, you know, on... Um, is it TV? My stop release premiere is uh, TNTV. So they used to have it, but they cancelled it. So I told myself, that's what I did first. I said, okay, if I want to talk about Mongolian, I need to learn myself the history, the language, but also the history of Mongolian. So that's what I did first. So my emphasis uh, was about how can I revitalize. I came down to, uh, after my uh, interviews and I came back here and I gave some recommendations. One of the things that I was thinking was that uh, in Mongolia, if, if we had the possibility to use a kind of um, radio frequency that would be dedicated to Mongolian language, and then you have all those very big ideas, and then you find out that uh, you can't do it because it depends on the French. The French have the authority when it comes to uh, media or when it comes to radio and everything to do with uh, frequency of radio and hertz. They they allocate. You can't read yourself. They allocate you within this the locality. They will allocate. They will check first if you're allowed to have one, and then they will allocate you a frequency watch which you can use on the island, you can't do it yourself. So here one of the here is one of the ridiculous um, situations we have in Tahiti or in French I should say Mahoinui is that we can't do it ourselves. If you want to save something, you'll have to go to eighteen thousand kilometers away for friends to give us the permission to do whatever we want we want to do to help our population. That's how ridiculous it is. So I also said, you know, we could set up for the language itself. You have some application that I could make here and download it and ask the young people, you know, because mostly young people don't speak very much. You know, if you if you're over the age of fifty, you might you will speak. If you are forty, more or less, but under that, until 
we don't speak Mongolian, so I was thinking because of technology, uh, I, I had all the wish to, I prepared an application to, <coughs> sorry, to to send it to, to Mongolia for people to download. Now the problem we have now is all about um, how we call that um, intellectual property. There's mm-hmm. such a big thing, and I am ready to work with some of the Maori. Because a lot of Maori groups and associations are doing the same thing here. They're trying to help give people uh, the, the kind of um, opportunity, free opportunity to learn their own language, you know, making it very easy, making it very um, like a cartoon, animated, things like that. And that is, we were, we were going to work on it. But when you see the, the amount of um, administrative papers you have to fill in for, Coming from the French, it just dissuades you. You just you lose your heart in this. Why? Why do you have to do this when, when it's for the good of all the Mongolians there? So I just that's why I, I sometimes I, I despair because we can't us from Mongolia we can't do what we need to do for the population without having the um, if you want the approval of the French, and it is so ridiculous. So that, that is how I started my, uh, my um, MPhil. I had all, I still have all these uh, information and all the equipment, but I can't use it. So I thought, okay, we're going to park this for the moment, you know, about all the recommendations to do, and I decided, okay, what are we looking at when I see that, you know, the French are there, they, they don't don't seem to be helping and to me it's mostly a Eurocentric vision that is there so I decided to end my PhD looking at the world view from us from our Tupuna and comparing it to the world view that you can see with obviously from Europe here it comes and you have to look at those two worlds and see how we 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 are we are we have lost our connection we have our own self, and is that's why I called my uh, my uh, thesis Turaga, which is you know the identity. Where can we find our sources, our, our uh, puna? You know, where, where the source mm. is. Where, where we uh, recognize ourselves as Mongolians. I'm not talking other. I'm just talking about Mongolians. I'm not talking Tahitians. I'm not talking Micasians. Mongolian, where is your identity? That is why I'm, I'm talking about my PhD. And it's those two worldviews that's just clashing. And we we, see, we are losing it. I mean, as for the moment, hopefully, <laughs> we're going to have, we're going to make some uh, progress. But for the moment, we've been overrun and overwhelmed by a Eurocentric vision, a French vision of the things. When we, Originally, we are Polynesian. We are from Mongolia, or we are from Marquesa, or we are from Tahiti. We are Polynesian. That is where we come from. And that, that is my message in my PhD. I want to make sure that we promote our own self as Polynesian people. Yes, yes. The work, I mean, the work that you do is so important because of, as you were saying, as the French presence here, where I live currently in French Polynesia, 
is so strong and they control, as you were saying, things like the radio, things like popular education, the school system. And so in order, and then in order to change that narrative, already it's like, um, it's not, it's not with, it's, it's not within the institutions. Like they're not letting that happen. And then when you try to help have that happen, they block you all the time or the higher ups could just easily, you know, uh, devalue what you do. That's right. It's, uh, that's, the, that's the fight we have to take for them because, um, you know, it, it is, after all, you know, our identity. I, I never consider, I used to consider myself French, but on the passport, but I don't live like a French. I don't feel like a French. I feel like a Polynesian, especially here, here in Aotearoa, you know, where they put mm. so much, um, uh, so much emphasis on being yourself as a indigenous people, you know, or from the yes, Pacific. Yes, exactly. I, I agree. Yeah, so that, that's, that's mm -hmm. it helps me a lot to be here. And uh, when I look at the Maori, how they, I mean, they, they, they strive to to keep up this Maori dom, if you want, you know, this, this Maori spirit for the next generation. Yeah. Okay. So, though the work that you've been doing has been like inspired partly by where you're at in Aotearoa. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And so, uh, do you do any sort of solidarity work with Maori there, or do you do so within the work at the museum locally? Or can you tell us more about your work at the museum? Yes, I have worked quite a lot at the museum because the idea was that. Um, my wife, uh, who used to work at the museum three years ago, came up with the idea that at the museum they have plenty of um, items or objects that come from all over the Pacific. And then uh, I was asked, uh, well, they they kind of kind of uh, documented all the different main islands where uh, more than 7,000 or more than that, 13,000 objects that you can see, you know, they're all in the uh, basement, come from the Pacific. And obviously they asked me to take part to represent Maori um, Nui, you know, all the objects mm -hmm. there. And I only saw one thing from Bangarewa. <laughs> oh, my. One thing. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I'm sure that thing was stolen. I, I thought it was, I'm sure it was, <laughs> it was given. I'm sure it wasn't given. So, you know, just one thing from Bangarewa. But I decided to go to take him on this kind of challenge because I thought it is important for people, especially we've got some Tahitians coming here and they have never seen pieces that they have here at the Oakland Museum. So I went into there. I said, okay, we're going to have, we have a small community here, maybe, you know, out of all the people I know, we can hardly, <laughs> well, it's not really a community, it's just a, a group of 20, maximum 20 mm -hmm. people that I know, you know, who are resident here, who are resident, uh, who, are, who reside here, sorry. And, uh, you know, they, they live here, so they are New, New Zealand, if you want, citizen, like my wife and I. So we decided to work on it, we decided to say, okay, this is what we have, what can we say? So I've done quite a lot of research on the different objects that they have at the museum. And we put it on uh, online so people can go online and see 
type mm. of transportation on track that we, we have some photos, we have some legends, we have some explanation. So that's the work I've done because I, I thought, you know, we need to recognize, recognize that we have some object here that hopefully, you know, after some negotiation, that might be able to be sent back to Tahiti or to the main island if they all have the infrastructure for to welcome those objects. So what I did as well, I asked the um, director of the uh, Musée de Tahiti des Îles, you know, to come mm-hmm. and uh, to have a look at the work that I've done and to kind of have a kind of a convention with between the Museum uh, Auckland Memorial and the Tahiti Museum, and then to exchange those options. Yes. There's so many here. Exchange it on a very, I mean, it's, it's not for a permanent one, but start exchanging on it. And, uh, if you want, um, just for maybe a six months you know, contract, exchange it and take it back. So people can come and see what they haven't seen before because it's been staying at the Auckland Museum in the basement. So in Tahiti, people would never have seen it. Some of the stuff that are in there are so amazing in the uh, basement of the Auckland Museum. So amazing that it needs to be coming out. I mean, it needs to be taken out of that, that box and shown to the people, which is what we did uh, in 2018. You know, we, we did the whole lot. We had a ceremony. I managed to have um, something like 100 Tahitian and Tahitian sympathizers. A lot of them were sympathizers, but um, uh, yeah, so that, that's how I managed to do. I, I wanted to bring them together and they, uh, so that they know that they have objects here that they, they might relate to. Some of the, I mean, the, the other idea is to look at some of the pictures, you know, photos that have been taken in Tahiti some years ago, in the 1800, 1800, 1900. Mm. So, uh, or oh, picture or uh, how to call it uh, paintings you know that might be that might remind people of places so that's the next step they want to do instead of just object but look at photos which are did in the other small library in town there is in town there's the Auckland library and then we work on some of the pictures that are there some of the tapa and giving the legend giving the explanation so that's the next thing that I hope we're going to do at the Auckland Memorial Museum. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a part of trying to promote our own, um, you know, our pre-nation of, uh, I should say, our Maunui outside of uh, Tahiti. That, that's my, my mm-hmm. plan. That's what I've done some contract work with uh, the Auckland Museum. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's great because I've actually been to the Auckland Museum in their, with their PCAP, I think, um was a program which allows yeah which allows uh people of pacific descent to uh access uh the certain uh, objects of our heritage and of our history and our culture which is absolutely wonderful like anyone that's like off the street but of pacific heritage and i would love to see that at the museum here in tahiti as well because it creates such a Yeah. Stronger relationship. Be a premier. Yeah. yeah. And so um, in terms of Mangareva, could you give us a little bit of uh, a history um, 
just for people that might not have heard of the islands, like uh, how is it connected to Polynesia, like Polynesia and in ways of like migration, language? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I've been reading the books and it's, it's in my uh, thesis as well, in my MPhil. I've been looking at them, how we, where we come from. That's what I've been doing with uh, my um, MPhil. But it looks like um, our ancestors, I mean, they say that uh, Manga River was populated in 11, well, 1200, you know, some 1200, 1300 uh, Manga River, so nearly 700 years ago, 700 to 800 years ago. Now, when I was reading all those things, I mean, you notice that most of the people who are writing are anthropologues or uh, researchers, mm. are usually white European researchers, you know, so they have all those, they, um, they come and question or interview people, get information and then write about it. So that's well, that's, that's the approach from the, um, that's the European approach. So, um, yeah. Uh, So the, he came here, Miru and Moa came here, and uh, there is a, uh, how say that, um, they find out, there's, there's a mythology, sorry, there's a mythology about Miru and Moa. When they got here, they wanted to find, you know, some women to populate the, the thing, but most of them were all, what they call it, a um, um, spiritual, you no know, uh, women coming from, the the pole, which is the underworld, so that's what they're trying to find more women to, mm. and then you know, they, they they couldn't find any. There was one, but uh, you know they, they didn't manage, so they went back to uh, they went back to the Marquesas, and then the famous one that we talk about um, with the Marquesas when we meet them is Tupa and his brother Norway. Uh, <clears throat> Tupa is the one who came and built all those. Uh, Maran dedicated to two, and two is, is the most important god in uh, in Mangareva and in the Marquesas, which is why we have these kind of similarities very close with the Marquesas. So god of war is two, and uh, the god as well of the breadfruit. The breadfruit is one of the, the most important fruit that we have in, in Mangareva and in the Marquesas. So Maran was dedicated to two, and all, all those... Um, different stories about two and how two uh, nine or ten different names for two so you know 
that, that, that's 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 the, that's the uh, link, uh, but also with the my cases along with the linguistic uh, uh, strands. So we uh, we are very close to the my cases, and uh, for example, when we have the um, they call it the Momoro, uh, which is a big event, Matapukirangi, uh, which is a big event where we invite my agents here and the family been. They, they, family relatives, you know, they just see one another, and you can tell they have been, they have been linked between those, uh, those relatives. So it's, uh, the cosmology is quite, it's quite uh, close as well, you know, with uh, with uh, the Maya cases. And but I do believe that Maori is much closer to uh, to Mongolia, and much much closer. We have some places here that relate in, in Aotearoa that relate to places. In, in Manga River. So names, you know, toponymy is quite uh, a place where we can see a uh, uh, domain where we can see names matching from Aotearoa and, and Manga River. So yeah, it's, um, that, that, that's how um, we, we, we believe, you know, that our ancestors came here. But obviously when the first French or European, actually English, James Wilson was the first to have. He, they, they like calling themselves themselves discoverers, but that's not the case. So he very, he came uh, for the first time to Mongolia. He didn't. He never. He saw it from afar. He never stopped. But uh, that's how the name Gambier is being allocated to uh, to Mongolia because he wanted to recognize one of those admirals that helped him uh, set up this kind of ship called the Duff. To, to take missionaries to Tahiti. So Gambier is, is the name of somebody who has no link, nothing to do with Mongolia, but hey, we are white, so we're going to put his name there and <laughs> claim, claim Mongolia as belonging to the English or, or with a name like that. So he, said he wasn't the first. I mean, James Wilson came there in 1792, and he was followed by another English one, Biche, who was there in 1824, and why did, obviously, <clears throat> Wilson called the whole archipelago Gambier, but Biche went a bit further, much further than that. He named all the single island in the name of his officers. <laughs> So you know they, they, they don't they don't ah. yes so Mangareva was called Pearl Island uh, some of Taravai when right I think some of the name that they have allocated when right and Esson Esson is the name of Akamaru and all those islands around it they, he decided that's it we're gonna name them according to our officers the arrogance is just is flagrant in it. So uh, yeah, that, that, that's 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 what's happening when the first European came in and decided to change a bit, you know, the way we see things because they because you don't see things like they do. So it's better if everything is uniform. <laughs> Homogenize everything. Make sure that the main colour is white, which is not the case. You know, reality doesn't reality doesn't tell us that the main colour is white. <laughs> Diversity is the main colour. So you know it's uh, yeah. That's that's the uh, that's a bit the history of of Mongolia. Now, um, 
in Bunga River now, we, as I said, I mean, the last, during the election, oh, it was last year, 19, sorry, there were 1,400 people on the island and outside, but I'll be very, very surprised that's the case. Why do I say that? It's because <coughs> we haven't had, I've got some figures here, can I just... Mm, can I just tell you about some figures here? It's very, it's very interesting. I don't know if you have time, but uh, oh yeah, no, 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 no. Figures, share with the us. The highest. So I did some research. You now Laval is the main, the first, <coughs> one of the first French priests that came to Mongariwa and that stayed in Mongariwa nearly thirty-one years. Anyway, so as I said earlier, Biche is the one that decided to name all those islands in the name of his officers. And he said that there are around 1,500 people at the time in 1825 when he visited the island. So he only based his uh, kind of estimation on the island he visited and saw the villages. So he, he gave his estimation of 1,500. So Laval, I mean, they were a bit more serious. The, uh, <clears throat> those priests, they made a thorough census of the population because they wanted to know because they were going, they were going to convert the whole island. They need to know how many deaths, how many births, and see you know what the population. So they, they know where to go, what to do. So at the highest point uh, during uh, uh, Laval's, if you want, uh, reign, you know, when he was governing the island, when the, the king went there anymore, the highest point was in 1845. There was something about 2,270. And that has been confirmed by other researchers. But we, we go down very quickly, very, very quickly, from 1845, nearly 10 years, <coughs> sorry, 40 years later, the lowest was 445. 445 mm. in 40 years. So from 1845, 2000 to nearly 2300, we go down to 444, Eighty-five. So in forty years, we lost nearly one thousand people, and then all of a sudden, when the French, <laughs> when the French uh, start coming, because you haven't got any demographic uh, census, when the French came in uh, nineteen sixty-six, you know, for to start with the first uh, nuclear testing. When they came here, the population in seventy-one, ninety-seven, it was five hundred and sixty-six on the island. So before that, there were something like 450, they were saying. So now is, well, in 2017, the population is 1,500. And then during the elections, no, the municipal, there were 1,250 or 450. Sorry. So, you know, it's just, I'm not sure it works like that because <clears throat> they must be taking people from other regions and making sure that you know it's good for Mongariba to have that many people, whether it's true or not. It doesn't matter as long as you receive, you know, when you have per head, you receive a certain amount from the government. So I think they're conflating, inflating all these, all this number to have some help from the population. So it's to me, it's a bit. Um, we, we we play with figures because there is another agenda behind that. You know, it's just, it's not clear. It's very much, uh, very um, blurry, <laughs> this thing. So, yeah, that, I just wanted to give you some um, some 
figures uh, about the population in Mongolia. Right. You haven't been looking. So that's actually. Yeah, exa I mean, exactly. It was like already under 2000 for before. Yeah. Um, yeah, 100 years ago, and then went down because of different sort of things like sicknesses and things like yes. that. Right. Yeah, and then, and then and then today now we have a, a booming population because that's directly connected with budgets that come from France, France to right. to um, to fund the island. Exactly. It's quite it's quite funny. Yeah, we're, we're pretty had, lucky that we, we are the descendants yeah. of that. It's funny that before we had all this French coming around with the disease from Europe, the population was fine. Was fine. <laughs> you know, 2,000, 400,000. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it goes down to 566 and now back to 1,500. Mm. So I'm not quite sure about those figures. But I just thought, you know, it's, <laughs> it's quite telling that uh, we were better off before we had the the French of the Europeans uh, coming to us. Oh, oh yeah. Me, I'm 100% in agreement with you. And I'm sure a lot of our <laughs> listeners could understand that point of view <laughs> and would definitely appreciate your work. And so I should end the um, interview just about now because we're running out of time. So yep. thank you so much. Anna, any last thoughts you want to give or messages, any social media oh, outlets you want to give out to our listeners in case they want to contact you? Oh, uh, no, I just, no, I just wanted to thank you again and thank Native Story for, for this opportunity given to me to talk about my work, but also to talk about a different uh, worldview. And I'm doing my best. You know, I mean, there is a, um, a march organized in October. It's about decolonization. I mean, mostly it's about anti <laughs> the uh, anti-climate thing, uh, climate change, sorry. So, but to me, is about decolonization and how we can ourselves be the masters of our destiny. You know, we don't have yes. to have all these things. And we, we can do ourselves. I mean, our ancestors understood that better than we, we are now because it's just... You know, you look at <clears throat> you look at happening now. You know, are we better off? Maybe, but I can tell you that uh, in Mongareva, which was happening now, the people who have been, you know, uh, infected by because it's still an ongoing um, matter or issue is uh, nuclear testing. So people are, are still dying because of the nuclear testing. You know, Thirty years, ninety-six or so. Ninety-six that's what twenty. 26 years, 24 years now, even though it was 50 years of all these 56 years. It's just unbelievable that uh, you know, we're still dying from that. So I want to carry my message during those march here in, in, in Aotearoa and make sure that we, we stay true to ourselves. So that's my message. Yeah, 100%. That's what we're about here at Native Story. And we've <laughs> Mahalo nui and maro'i nui to you, Anna, for sharing your story with us. <laughs> um, if you all want to, if you all want to further connect with us at Native Stories, please do follow us on Facebook. Search Native Stories for daily updates or any on Native Kind Mea or things. Please download our mobile app and listen to us on all streaming podcast outlets. Just search Native Stories. Make sure to share us with your Ohana, Hoapili, friends, lovers, or whoever you'd like. 
Native Stories prides ourselves in being your resource of truth-telling and Indigenous knowledge. And the more you share, and the more the more people will know and be informed. So again, thank you, Anna, for sharing uh, this wealth of knowledge about Mangareva and your research. And we're sending plenty of aloha to you all out there. Mahalo for tuning in.